You're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I got to tell you something, people. We have a great show today. My guest, uh, she just uh, got her autobiography done. It's called Life is So Strange, Missing Persons, Frank Zappa, Prince and Beyond. And I remember when I first saw Dale, it was on MTV, and it was a video. I believe this is the first time I saw her, and she was wearing this... Looked like a futuristic bikini. I want to find out what that outfit was. And my guest is the one and only Dale Bosio. How you doing, Dale? Hey, good, great, thank you. Thanks for saying hello. I appreciate it. No problem. So, so you remember back? I think it was the video words. Uh, what was what was the outfit you were wearing? How did you come up with that? Well, you know, I was so tiny. I, I never wanted. I never wanted to be seen in something that maybe someone else would be having on. Um, and I wanted to keep a kind of unique um, mystique about things. So I decided to go to the plexiglass store and the hardware store and um, put some clothes together. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking. I don't think I was thinking too clearly. <laughs> uh, so I developed this, uh, uh, you know, this project with these plexiglass clothes and then i said oh now we gotta really outdo myself so i started reaching into coconuts and records and all kinds of like articles that i could put on my body and go to work in now that sounded like a creative thing were, were you always creative like were you a creative kid um yeah, I think so. Uh, I, you know, but I was always around my father, who was uh, in construction. He was always building hotels or uh, fireplaces. I don't know, roofs. <laughs> you know, think crazy stuff. So I was really into um, all different kinds of, of, of products and awareness, and um, I, I didn't really do more than the average regular kid, you know, riding bikes, playing kick the can. I, you know, I, I skated and I, um, but, uh, I used to write and isolate quite a bit. I watched a lot of TV, like dark shadows (laughs) and, uh, popular TV shows. I got my own TV at an early age and I thought that I was so cool. So, um, I, I, I spent a lot of time by myself. I was raised by my father and I lived alone with him for, I don't know, 16 years. So, um, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't know, creative, I don't know, not so much really. Well, I don't know, I, I do paint now though, you know, I'm painting, but I'm writing another book now. I'm writing a book about my mother because my mother was born in prison. They imprisoned my grandmother when she was 14 years old and made her stay in prison to have a baby. And then they took the baby away from her, and that baby ended up being my mother. (laughs) So uh, let's put it this way. Without my grandmother being as bold and strong at a 15-year-old little lady, I wouldn't be here. Now, you said you're writing another book. Well, you you just came out with a book. Um, you're naked. What what made you decide to write your autobiography? Because I always wonder, you know, you've had a great career, but had you thought about it or been approached earlier in, in your career or what made you come out with it now? No, no one asked me to write the book. I'm the one that went and got the publisher and said and got my friend Keith Valcourt and said, we're going to write this book. I made my mind up to it. I had just I, I 
I get these notions and I say, okay, I'm going to make a record. <laughs> Maybe nobody even wants me to make a record, but I do it anyway. And I do make the record. And I, I just put my mind together. One day that um, my son came in, he said, wake up, your boy died. And I knew what he meant by my boy. I I'm call Prince my boy. And, uh, and he said, don't flip out. And I, of course, I started flipping out, crying my eyes out. And I said, okay, well, fine. Now all those papers that everybody signed that they wouldn't disclose anything about what they he, the presents he gave them or <laughs> the things they did together. I said, well, uh, that goes out the window now. I'm going to sit down my little pen and start writing my relationship with Prince and my my affair with him and, and my great record and my time with Frank Zappa and all the people that I loved and lost. I said, you know what? Before I die, I'm going to put the truth in a book, collect it full of a bunch of my favorite photographs, put some nice poems in there to some of my friends. I'm going to tell everybody with the, the, what Dale is, and I describe myself to a T, and that's it. And I leave it at that and say, you know what? You won't break me. You haven't broke me yet. Have a nice day. So when you sit down to formulate a book... Where do you start? I mean, when you sat there... I don't know. Yeah, this book is not formulated. This broke the mold. It is not like a book that you would regularly hear somebody talking in conversations and having a nice day. This is a diary of Dale and all the things that happened to Dale as a little girl and as growing up and as becoming a... I had a tragic accident at 20 years old. I 21 years old. I fell out a window 40 feet and landed on my head. And then Frank Zappa took me in and his wife cared for me, and I went back to work for Frank Zappa and then put a band together called Missing Persons and then went on to make a record on uh, on Prince's label and continue to make Missing Persons uh, concerts. And uh, I'm an ever-ready battery, I guess. Now, when did you start performing music? When did you start singing and performing music? Not until I met Frank Zappa in um, 1976. Now, how did you meet Frank? I met Frank because I climbed up a fire escape in 1972 at the Orpheum Theater, and I climbed in the bathroom window, and I opened the door, and Frank was standing there, and he started laughing. He said, how did you get in here? And I said, I climbed in the bathroom window up the fire escape <laughs> so he just started laughing hysterically and said give this girl a backstage pass and i said well my girlfriends are coming up the, the fire escape now and coming in the window there's two more of them he said okay get two more backstage passes he said do you have a car i said oh yeah i got a car he goes well i got one more song to sing hang out here and we'll go out to dinner and that's how it started and he remembered me <clears throat> and then we went out to dinner that night, but I ended up telling him that I was only 16 years old and I didn't have a driver's license and I had stolen my mother's canary <laughs> yellow convertible old autumn, um, uh, Oldsmobile and that uh, I couldn't go to his party. So he said, oh yeah, no, you can't go to the party. you got to go home. <laughs> and so I had to leave him there and I, I left in tears and then in... Oddly enough, in 76, I had an appointment at Hugh Hefner's house to go there to be in the, move in the house and be a centerfold, and that didn't work out because Hefner wouldn't even come down the stairs and talk to me. I drove 3,000 miles to get there, and he wouldn't even talk to me at all. So I turned around and walked out and left and ended up going down to the studio instrumental lots in Los Angeles, and there, within 15 minutes, I was standing in front of Frank Zapper again, 
1976, uh, <clears throat> February 10th, 1976. Now, did, did he remember you? Did you tell him the story? He yeah, he did. I, what happened was, I, I'm, I'm hearing Frank singing, right? And I'm like, oh my God, this is Frank. I, I don't know where he is. And I'm trying to bowl the music, right? So I get to this door and there's this giant like semi door that they drive trucks into. And there's a sign on the door. And it says, if you value your life, do not open this door. Now, <laughs> I'm pretty, I'm pretty depressed right now. I'm on E and my firebird, <laughs> and I am in black leather clothes. I'm hungry, and I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm stuck in L.A., and I open the door, <laughs> and Frank is standing there. He goes, oh, no, it's you. <laughs> What are you doing here? I said, I know, Frank, I can't believe you remember me. You're talking to me. He goes, who else is here? Who else opened the door? I go, oh, no, I know. I'm sorry I opened the door, but I had to talk to you, Frank. He goes, no, it's okay. Come on in. Come on in. I, I want to introduce you. Here's Terry Ted Bozio, Patrick O'Hearn, Eddie Jobson. And I'm like, hi, okay, hello. <laughs> and he said, are you hungry? What are you doing here? I go, oh, Frank, I'm starving. He goes, okay, go over there and get an apple. <laughs> <laughs> I go, okay, okay. I took the apple, and uh, he said, what are you doing? I said, well, um, I, I just left you Hefner's house, and I was supposed to move in and be a Valentine on Valentine's Day, and he was going to put me on the payroll, and he wouldn't come down the stairs and talk to me. I got flipped out, and I walked out on him with my, like, Roman attitude and said, I got to go. See you later. And now I've got a, a, this Playboy here in my hand, this issue, and I'm in it, but now I'm thrown out of the Playboy mansion, so I have no job. And Frank started laughing. <laughs> He started laughing, and, and I'm like, okay, this ain't funny, because <laughs> I'm broke, and I'm scared, and I'm all alone, and I have nowhere to go. Um, I had just drove my Firebird convertible from Boston to L.A. with a shoebox full of cash that I earned at the Playboy Club. I spent it all, and I had nowhere to go, and he said, Okay, come back here by midnight. You'll go home with Terry Bozio. He'll fill the car up with gas. You come in the studio tomorrow. You're going to be Mary. You're going to be Mary on Joe's Garage. <clears throat> I said, who's Mary? <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> what are you talking about, Frank? He said, well, you need a job, right? I said, yeah, Frank, I, I'm, I'm hungry. He said, okay, $500 a week. You start tomorrow. I'll pay tomorrow. Go with Terry Bozio, everything will be all right. I'm like, oh, sure. I'm like, sure it will. <laughs> so I said, okay, all right, fine. But I don't know how to sing, Frank. I came to Hollywood to be a movie star. <laughs> he started laughing again. <laughs> that was the whole thing with Frank. I made him laugh. You know, it makes me laugh now. And thank God I had that laughter because I, I tend to cry because he makes me so sad that I miss him so greatly that I can't talk to him now and ask him, what do you, in the hell's name do you think I should do with my life? So <laughs> I just kind of think I'm talking to him because I have his picture here. And, you know, I kind of fool myself into what I think he might tell me to do. And I, I that's what I think. 
that's I, I brainwash myself. Well, <laughs> you know, it makes life comical. Well, you know, what, what else can you do? What do you What do you think uh, drew him to you? Because because he remembered you from when you were younger, and then he just he looked after you. What do you think made him? Well, well, when he met me and I climbed up the fire escape that day, I had green hair. I had a mini skirt on up my ass with a green Malibu top on with hardly any clothes on. And dude, if you didn't remember me, you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I can say. I weighed 88 pounds and I looked like what the fucking devil blew in. <laughs> so I don't know what he saw in me because I, I don't see it. <laughs> I don't see it, but he, he definitely got my humor. You see, I made him laugh. When he saw me open that door from the bathroom, it had one toilet that was broken in it, a stall, okay, with no top on it. I climbed in and almost went through the fucking middle. When I jumped off that toilet and opened the door, he laughed hysterically thinking, how in the holy God's name did that girl get in that two by four? How did she get in there? And how did she get backstage? It's impossible. He knew that it was impossible for me to get in there. It was his dressing room. He blew his mind. So when I told him I climbed up the fire escape three stories, he's like, are you crazy? I'm like, a little bit. Now, 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 how did how did it go when you went to record when you went to record Joe's Garage? How did it go? I mean, did you you had never been in a studio? I'm guessing. I mean, what what happened when no, you went in? I, I went I went back that night, like Frank told me, and I met Terry. He he was finished earlier than midnight. I went back there a few hours later. He he took me filled me up my car, took me out to eat Mexican food, took me back to his apartment. Being, I made love to him. We were moving in the next day. I never left. I became his girlfriend. Uh, I was then in with the in crowd. And all of a sudden, uh, the next morning, we go at 10 o'clock, and there I am in the studio with Frank Zappa and all these people singing Little Green Rosetta with Steve I. <laughs> I was 20, 21 years old. <clears throat> so I stayed in L.A. for a limit of six months, and uh, by the end of that six months, they went to Japan, Frank Zappa, and said they'll be back in a couple of weeks. And I was to stay at Terry's house. And um, what happened was the next day, I had a tragic accident and fell out a window out of a hotel down in downtown Los Angeles. I fell 40 feet out the window on the sidewalk, and I was incapacitated for the whole next, pretty much the next year. And um, I woke up and... The doctor said, you're a miracle to be alive, little girl. Better thank God for the rest of your life. And then I went back and slipped into a coma. And then the next time I woke up, I was in Gail's house, Gail Zappa's house, in Frank's living room. And um, they weren't back from Japan yet. And uh, I had to get shipped out of there and back to Boston to go to the Santa Maria Hospital to get on life support because I was incapacitated. I uh, broke my ribs and my kneecaps and my split my head open because I fell in this great uh, fall. And uh, the people that built the Holiday Inn sign that ricocheted my fall, I hit that. My split my head open when I hit that, and and that literally saved my life. So when I hit the concrete, I was already passed out. So I only broke a few bones and I didn't break my neck. 
and I, I was able to survive. <clears throat> and um, when I got better, uh, Frank and Frank Zappa ended up playing back at the Orpheum Theater again. And uh, I, <clears throat> I, I, I uh, convinced my cousin to take me to the concert. I caught him by it was the last song of the show. And I said, Frank, uh, didn't we do this a few months ago? <laughs> didn't this happen like once before? And he said, yeah, all these years ago. And now look, you're right back here and here I am again. And I'm, I love you and you're beautiful. That's when he told me those two things. And that made me get better. <laughs> it made me get better. I, I just said, okay, I'm addicted to morphine. I, 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 I can't walk straight anymore. And you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fucked up, Frank. He said, it's okay. We'll overlook it and uh, you'll get better. You'll get better. Don't worry. You'll get better. And I, <laughs> I believed him. <laughs> And I got better. And I pulled my life t together so strongly and so almighty that uh, you can't break me. And you won't break me now. You'll never break me until the day I die. The, 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 this just no controlling me. I have a spirit that's uncontrollable. And I am always going to survive. I'll survive. I will, I will float to the top. No matter what happens to me, it doesn't, it, it, it's not going to change what I've done and what I've created and what I'm trying to continue by writing this book is to tell everybody to do the right thing and turn the light on and, and stop living in darkness and make your own decisions and don't be afraid. doesn't matter if you're afraid of the dark. So keep, put the light on and get over it. And that's what I do. I'm, I'm afraid of the dark, <clears throat> but I, <clears throat> I deal with it. And I, I deal with the things, you know, that I miss and, and the people that have died on me that I love. And I, I deal with it. It, it, it. You know, I'm not saying it's great. It sucks. But I make do by watching TV shows from Zolian Isles. It's my favorite show. I love you that know? show. I love that show. You know, when I lived in L.A., I did background in that show. <laughs> and I played a lawyer and they gave me a Hugo Boss suit. And I was oh, style and I was like, it's so cool. Oh, you lucky guy! Oh, that's and I was getting, I was, I was, I was getting a bagel. I was getting a bagel, and the woman who played Isles came up, and we started talking. And she was, she was really nice. Oh, she is. Oh, I love her. Oh, I love her. I love those two so much. <laughs> I watch the repeats every day. I just keep watching. <laughs> it doesn't matter if I've seen them ten times. I just love them. Now, I love them more than Lassie. <laughs> <laughs> now, you said you said earlier you've kept creating. I want to know, you know, because you've had a really a lengthy career and a very successful one. How did Missing Persons come about because they're a group that you know we listened to when they came out i was on the east coast and we listened to it in high school and into college and we just it was a different sound how did that band come about yeah frank zappa looked at us one day and said the three of you should put a band together and call yourselves the cute persons <laughs> and we looked at each other and went uh <clears throat> i don't know about that frank <laughs> we work for you i don't know <laughs> said well that's what I think you should do and that was later on you know after I fell out the window after he took me to Europe after I was on tour with them as the girlfriend of Terry Bozios and I mean I'd gone through a lot of time and energy with these guys Terry and, and Warren and Zapper and I looked at Terry and Warren and said we better do what Frank says <laughs> that's it we better do it so Warren had to quit 
working for Frank. Terry quit working for Asia, John Wetton and Eddie Jobson. And uh, I wasn't doing anything. I was a loafer anyway. So <laughs> I just started writing songs and practicing singing. And uh, we put the band together. And he said, okay, when you're ready, come in here in the studio, use my brand new Kurtzweil, take the studio, give me, you know, rough out the spots, drive over to Ken Scott. He just finished doing uh, Let's Dance with David Bowie. Go get him. Tell him I want him to make your record. <laughs> so I did. I did everything that Frank told me to do. And if Frank was here today and he told me to jump, I'd say how high. Now, how, how did you go about writing songs? Because it's something that was, it was new to you. <clears throat> we just got together on the floor in the living room, and I gave them all, Terry and Warren, my poems, and said, how do you like this? I got a song called Destination Unknown. <laughs> and they're like, what does that mean? <laughs> I said, ah, well, it means I almost died, and uh, I don't know what the destination is over there. It's unknown, and where do we go from here, which means uh, where do we go when the lights go out? That's what it's all about. And they went, okay, let's do it. Destination unknown. You got it. Life is so strange. Okay. And that's how it started. And we just kept writing. And Terry said, we should write a song called Mental Hopscotch. And we wrote the song. And I was at the, I, I was at, uh, what do you call it, the Rainbow in L.A. with uh, Warren Cucurulo. And we had just left Frank's house and we were eating pizza. And he said, you know what? Let's go home. Let's do what Frank says. Put the band together. You write a song called I Like Boys because boys like you. <laughs> I said, okay, let's do it. I went home that night, wrote the song I Like Boys, brought it to, to Warren. He said, this is incredible. It sounded like the Flying Lizards at the time because they had the talking girl. And uh, Terry, he said, let's go see Terry in, in Las Vegas. And he was playing in Las Vegas with the band, his friends. And then we went to the concert and we played him the tape on the boom box. And he said, this is crazy good. Let's do it. And that's what happened. And we just did it every day. We split submarines three ways and our roofies and we shared everything and, and took care of each other and became the greatest friends on the planet. And I don't know what happened, but we fell apart. And I quit and I ran out on them and then I ended up screwing Warren and everybody got mad and I mean literally I'm talking. And so things went a little astray. <clears throat> and I tried to be honest with everybody and say, you know, it's all good that I still love you anyway, but they got mad at me, Terry and Warren, and they were not going to accept my lewdest, lewd and lucidious behavior. And I was doing a lot of drugs and drinking and uh, just being a potty girl, and they didn't like it. And I wasn't going to listen to them. And then I ran into Prince while I'm out partying in a nightclub at Tramps, poked him on the nose, told him I wanted to dance. He danced with me. He asked me what I wanted, and I told him I didn't want to marry him, but I wanted a number one record. He said he'd give it to me. I went and told Terry and Warren I was done with them, and I was going with Prince. And they thought I was delirious because they thought, you know, to quote his song, but they thought I was uh, not thinking with my full brain. But I knew it was going to happen because <clears throat> I knew that Prince loved missing persons because when I first met him, the night I met him, we had a, an affair under the sheets. I'm not going to say exactly what I did, but uh, we had a little taboo. And then he 
said, what do you want? Whatever you want, I'm going to give it to you. Whatever it is. Marry me tonight. Let's go to Vegas. He literally got on his knee and proposed to me. And me being a frivolous, foolish, independent, silly girl from Medford, <laughs> I said, I don't think so. <laughs> and uh, he said, well, then what can I get for you? The house next door? What? The Purple Rain motorcycle? Anything. I'll make a movie for you. Anything. I said, I want a number one record. That's what I want. I want a number one record on the radio, and then I want to be a movie star. But it didn't happen because um, he challenged me and gave me an ultimatum and told me if I didn't love him more than I loved my father that I was fired and that he was done with me and he'd never talk to me again. But you know what? On the record day, a few days before he died, he went to the record store in Minneapolis on his bicycle by himself and bought five vinyl records, and my record, The Best of Missing Persons, was one of them. Now, with Missing Persons... I want to ask you, you know, you said you guys, you started, you know, you started your, with Frank told you to get in the band. How did you guys get your record deal? I mean, you, you really became huge. How did that all happen? How did the record deal come about? The record deal was tough because we uh, sent the record and went, tried to make meetings with everybody. So many people, including the Go-Go's manager and the, all these record companies said no. They said, no, 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 no. You're not the direction of the music for the 80s. So I thought they were making a mistake. <laughs> I told Geffen Records, I said, you're making a big mistake. I walked out on Geffen. He said, pay me $10,000 and I'll put your record out. I said, you know what? Pay me $10,000 and I'll put your record out. <laughs> See you later. I walked out on him. I walked out on a lot of people, to tell you the truth. I was really a rabid little spoiled girl. I didn't take no for an answer. I wasn't going to listen to you if you didn't like me. And if you didn't like me, why would I audience you? I wasn't going to do that. And I um, didn't care that I was only 26 years old and I was five foot two, 88 pounds. You weren't going to, you weren't going to tell me what to do. And I was going to be a big rock star. That's it. <laughs> so that's the way I went. And that was my attitude. And I, I, I invited um, the president of Capitol Records to um, uh, the concert that we sold out at the Santa Monica Civic. We had we had Al Yankovic's open the show with watermelons and all this bullshit, and we sold out the show. And I had the president of the record company standing on the side of the, the wings. And when the show was over, he said, "Come here, Dale. Come here. You got a record deal. I'll see you tomorrow in my office with your lawyers." I said, "That's right. That's what I want to hear." Have a nice night. Went back and proceeded to snort some more blow. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, after you got the record deal, you know, you, you do an EP, and then, you know, when Spring Session M comes out, I mean, did you, what did you expect from that record? You're in the studio, you had songs written. I mean, there's so many good songs in that and singles. How did you guys go about recording that? Like, did you sit there and know exactly what songs you wanted to put on it? Or and did you have more songs? Or how did that happen? We had a lot more songs, and we still have a lot of songs that we never even put, put to, to publishing uh, uh, Missing Persons. We, we were great writers, the three of us together, Terry Warren and I. I'm telling you, if you put the three of us back together again right now, Capitol Records doesn't know what they're missing. We'd have a, we'd have a smash. 
we'd have a powerful piece of music. We had every song on that spring session and record deserved a video, but we got so busy so fast that we had to pour procure our record deal with them we had another deal to make another record within a certain amount of time frame so we had to make the next second record we weren't even finished with the hits on that record we don't have a video for walking in la we don't have a video for noticeable one are you kidding me i mean seriously there's so many hits off that song mental hopscotch hello i i mean uh mental hopscotch here and now noticeable one what are words for all i want is a window walking in la come on that's six hits right there uh, destination unknown makes seven so i don't know it just it was seen to me as a lot of wasted material that album should go down in history it's never been nominated for anything and I'm shocked that Terry Bozio's in the Hall of Fame, and I'm not. You should be. Now, I'm going to ask you, the videos, you mentioned videos. What was it like in the early, in, back then, like, videos could change your career. What was your experience shooting videos? Some people loved them, some people hated them, some people, because it's you know, still I, sitting I loved, I loved them, because I wanted to be a movie star. Are you kidding me? It was my key to, <laughs> that was my key to fortune. <laughs> and I'm super photogenic. I was told this since I'm a tiny, tiny little girl. Oh, my God, she's so photogenic. Everybody put a camera in front of my face. And I had shied cameras. I didn't really ever think that I was pretty. I don't really think that I'm beautiful. I just think that I have a pleasing face that's very soft and kind. But I don't really, I never really thought of myself as a movie star, but I wanted to be one, of course. What little girl at nine years old doesn't want to be a movie star? So um, I, I was so grateful to be in those videos, and most of the videos we designed around me which I was thankful enough that Terry and Warren would give me that platform. Warren was very receptive of writing and scripting things. And then we did a song in the second album, the Rhyme and Reason song. We did this video. We did a couple of videos right now in Give, but the Give video is very profound. Terry designs his own drum set. Warren designs his own guitar. I mean, we really go to hills. I have like black makeup on and black, you know, probably teeth i don't know but i mean we broke the mold we broke the mold there's no there's no comparison you can name all these kinds of new rock stars and this one and that one but they've been designed they didn't do it themselves with the tooth and the nail and the saws i cut my things and, and put plexiglass drill bits and in, in drills and and had plexiglass saws i mean dude i went all the way all right this wasn't just a make-believe fantasy disney movie this is real life the book that I just wrote tells you every single layer and slice and ice and icing and not icing, whether I screwed Frank's apple or I didn't. The Prince, I did. Frank, I didn't. And I'm blatantly enough truthful to tell you the whole truth. But I need to tell you before I go any further that you've got to go to Facebook slash DaleBozio.com to get this book from me. I will personally autograph it to you or your sister, whoever, or your long-lost love. And I will send you special 8x10s that no one has in thankfulness of you to get this book from me. It's expensive. There's only a limited amount. I myself personally only have a limited. I have a limited 400 books to my name. So if you want this book, you better get it because I can't guarantee it's not going to be a bestseller. And it will probably be a cult book and it will be a collector's item because it won't be able to be found. Now, you said you have a bunch of great photographs. When did, did you take the photographs, or how did they come about? 
it came about from me taking them, my parents taking them, my girlfriends, my friends, my boyfriends, uh, that kind of thing. I paid uh, Helmut Newton for his photo session that I personally own. Uh, so I put the pictures of myself in there that Helmut Newton took of me. He's passed away since, unfortunately. And then I was also a model on the cover of Larry Flint's magazines, the Hustler magazines. And uh, before he passed away, he gave me those two covers for free and said, thank you very much. And he was a dear friend. Um, and I, I have a lot of pictures from my childhood, a lot of pictures of me and all my outfits from fans that have uh, dedicated them to me. Their names are all mentioned. I have some fans that drew pictures of me that I included, I thought, you know, that how would they ever get known or seen if I didn't give them attention? And for them to paint a picture of me, it's just, it's just very, very kind. I, I, uh, I, I don't know, but my son tells me I'm the movie star in Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> well, okay, and I'm going to ask you, when you said you wanted to be a movie star, when your videos came out, and because MTV was so big, how did your life change? People must have recognized you all the time. Uh, yeah, they did. They did, actually. I used to go to the uh, Westwood Hole supermarket in Westwood uh, with my blue hair and my uh, black leather clothes on. And, yeah, people would say, Dale, <laughs> what are you doing? Do you hear me? <laughs> you know, <something> like that. <laughs> yeah, they still do. You know, I walked in the stores around where I live in West L.A. <laughs> do the same thing. They asked me, do you care? <laughs> I go, yeah, I do. <laughs> I care. You know, it's so funny. All the girls at the Seas Chocolate Candy place over here. I've been going here now. I, I, I love Seas Chocolate Candy. I'm crazy. I'm a crazy mentally a deranged chocolate-aholic. <laughs> if you want to take care of Dale, send her chocolates. That's it. <laughs> I'm your best friend. So I go to this chocolate store ritually. I mean, I mean, really. I'm probably their like <laughs> biggest customer. And I walk by, and then on my birthday, it was so funny. They opened the door. Dale, Dale, we're waiting for you to come in. It's your birthday. Give us a on the radio. <laughs> and there you go. You know, you gotta love it. You know. I mean, another 67 years old. I used to be 27, and I was chased by boys. <laughs> now I'm chased by C's candy store. You know what? You know what I love about C's? When I lived in Burbank, there was one in the mall, and you could always get a free sample every time you Absolutely. walked in. Absolutely. Absolutely. You can be broke out of your mind, but you can eat at C's. <laughs> no. I have been broke, let me tell you. I have been. Through the COVID, I've passed by C's and looked in the window, and they go, Dale, what are you doing looking in the window? Open the door. <laughs> you gotta love it. I mean, really. You know, the world should be, it should be so easy to just let the world survive on chocolates. <laughs> now, now, when you, when Missing Persons, when you, that album started selling, selling well, what was it like for you touring then? Because as you get bigger, what what was life like on the road for Dale Basio? Oh, it, it was it was the the best part of my life. Um, I got to be with Terry and Warren every day, and we went on. We were explorers. We one tour we took in a limousine. <laughs> we went all across the country, all through New York, Boston, in a limousine, and um, Warren's father paid for it. Warren. Warren's father was our biggest fan, and he gave me presents all the time. 
diamond gold, solid gold bracelets. And you find me like fabric from all over the world. His father was a big, very, very um, wealthy um, um, uh, material fabric source in New York City. And uh, so the first thing he said, just go to the whole factory with any fabric you want. And he'd buy me sewing machines. I swear to God. Like every three months, I'd have a new sewing machine at my door. <laughs> Believe it. His father treated me like an angel. And Terry Bozio's father, he loved me too. Like, oh gosh, he loved me. And he would cook us these incredible meals. And I, going on tour, we would always go to New York and spend time with Terry's parents and Warren's parents. Then we'd go to San Francisco and see Terry's parents. And then we'd go to Boston and see my parents. And we'd go off on tangents and we'd go to top of top of the, the, the steeples of places and we were adventurous and then we were we had tons of money and we were so cool <laughs> people would look at the three of us and go uh oh these guys are like rock stars because Frank was right he looked at us one day and went oh god this is a rock band made in heaven <laughs> you know and it was it was we, I was foolish to quit but I quit because you know, I, I, I stand by God and I think to myself, God, I'm sorry, but I can't be sorry because I did what I thought that I had to do. I had to do Dale. I, I, if I don't do Dale and I can't pat Dale on the shoulder, I'm not doing the right thing. It's not right. <clears throat> my parents and the people before me and my grandmother who, who struggled so hard to have my mother, I, I can't let her down. She died at 62 years old. She died such a terrible life. They had to cut her leg off. She couldn't make it, okay? She couldn't make it. She was a poor little girl raped at such a tiny little age and so beautiful and precious. And how could you do it? Just how could you? How could you, okay? Never to be found this person that did this to my grandmother. How could it be possible? And I, I, I just, I think about all the family and everyone that's loved me and and the tours that I've done, and I've kissed so many people and hugged so many people, and the tours that we did with missing persons, we were generous, we were loving. I mean, we'd be go places and buy people pizzas, man. We we were just generous. We were not not anything but generous. I I can't I can't say enough good things about the missing people, really. Now, how did and, how, and, how, how did you get the name missing persons? Well, because I told you, Terry and Frank said to us one day, put the band together, call yourselves the cute persons, right? And we said, I don't think we're cute. And I think we're going to be the missing persons from Frank Zappa's band. So we said, that's it. Missing persons. <laughs> Perfect. And that wasn't at the time of the computer. Right now, you go to the Pokemon missing persons, you come up with like a thousand missing people that are like taken by aliens, you know, like, oh, God. Now you you, 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 know, you put in missing persons the band, or you'll be in you know I don't know where on another planet. Now you you talked about being on tour. I got to ask you because I I just saw on a Access they have the old videos of the um the US Festival in in no, yeah. what was that like tell me tell me your experience with that because it was just it was such an amazing concert there's so many great bands what was it like backstage what was it like being on stage in front of so many damn people um well you know i just say to myself that was the biggest moment of my life um actually i i i i you know i've never won an award i've never been nominated for an award 
And that moment that I stepped out there, I was a, almost a million people, and it didn't even look right. It, it didn't look right. It looked really strange and like a sea. It almost looked like an ocean. They were swaying and jumping and screaming and singing, and we were on a screen that had to be a thousand feet tall. It was just ridiculous. And I, I was never so big and so unreal in my whole life. And I, I looked at that crowd and went, whoa, you better, you better be really, really goddamn fucking good, dude, because in a little while, they're going to see David Bowie. So you better pull it together. And I did. I pulled it together, and I walked out there, and I took complete control. And I looked at them all, and I thought, you know what? This is my show. This is all for me. And that's how I played it. And that's how I play it when I play for one person. I sing in my living room sometimes for my sons. <laughs> I say, I like that. And they just go, okay, whatever you say. <laughs> or I sing for a million. It doesn't matter. I do with the same heartfelt presentation. And I have since I'm a little girl. When I was a little girl, I did tap dancing. The first time I was ever on stage, I was, let's say, seven, eight. And I sang Itsy Bitsy Teeny Weeny Yellow Polka Dot Bikini. I had an Itsy Bitsy Teeny Weeny Yellow Polka Dot Bikini on with fishnets, tap dance shoes. And I went out and sang and tap danced to that song. And I was petrified. And my dance teacher, who was my Aunt Dorothy, pushed me by the back of my back and pushed me sideways and said, you get your ass out there. The show must go on. <laughs> and I went, what? How dare you? She said, you heard me. Get your little ass out there and do this song. <laughs> I had been taking dance lessons all year to get to this point. And I went, yeah, that's right. I'm going to do this song. And I went out there and I had a cane <laughs> and my hair was all fancy. And believe you me, I, I, I did it. I did it. I tap danced and I sang that song like I was Judy Garland. <laughs> I nailed it. And that's when I got scared. That's when I was really scared. And I was so shaken and so scared. And I kept doing it. And it kept going. And I kept saying, Itsy bitsy, ding, weeny, yellow vocals, up again. That I wore for the first time today. It was this amazing song that this woman wrote. And she still collects the publishing. I'll tell you right now. She still owns it. I ran into a bank in Los Angeles with she was there, and Warren was giving me like $20,000 this day. And she was there. I couldn't believe it. I said, no. She said, oh, yeah, I pick up my publishing check. And she was very old, and she was the writer. Yeah. And that's the day, and I said, okay, I guess, uh, I guess this is okay, and I guess I can do this. And I continued to tap dance and sing on recitals with my aunt. But I only had private lessons because I can't be around other people. I get really scared and nervous. So I had these private lessons. And when it came that day, she wasn't going to hand no for an answer. Private lessons for one goddamn fucking year. I mean, two times a week. No way. I was going out there. <laughs> like it or not. And I did it. And uh, she was the one that pushed me right there that day. That's the woman that gave me the guts. 
Now, you talk about surviving, and now after Missing Persons broke up the first time, you guys have gotten back together a few times. How does that come up when you get back with a band? Like, your first time you guys got back together, how did that happen? Well, I went to Frank on the uh, last week that he was dying, and he said to me, I said, Frank, what should I do now? And he's the one that told me. He said, get Terry and Warren play mental hopscotch for me that's my favorite song i said frank i haven't talked to them in 10 years he said well now's the time to talk to them and you go tell them that you saw me and i was gonna die and i want you to go play for me the three of you together mental hopscotch because it's my favorite song will you do that dale i said yes frank i will if it takes me the rest of my life i will do that for you frank and i think he told me that because that was what was good for me. That wasn't, what did he care? He was going to be dead. <laughs> right? He didn't do it for him. He told me to do that for me because he was always thinking of me when he talked to me. That's the kind of person he was to me. He cherished my jokes so much that he gave me strength. And here I am crying over it. But <laughs> that's the thing. He is the man that takes me to my knees. And I never even kissed him on the lips. Ever in my whole life. I don't love him like that. I, I love him like my my guru. My, my caretaker. I, I cherish him. I... I don't even have the words to explain my heart that breaks every day when I know I, I can't see him anymore. And I, I've been crying since then, since I said goodbye to him. I can't, <laughs> I, I, I can barely hold back the tears and it, 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 it breaks me my heart it breaks my heart he's the only one that, that could ever break me and he would never he, he would never want me to cry like i do he wouldn't he, he wouldn't want me to think i'm a tough bitch and and shut up and and go sing the songs and and, and don't be foolish get the money <laughs> do the right thing that's what he would say and that's what he told me all the time he said one day you'll have to replace terry and warren You'll just have to do it, and you'll do it, because that will be the thing, the right thing to do. And I did, and I, I looked and laughed at him that day. He actually said it while we were all in the kitchen having peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. He used to make me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I mean, like that's how <laughs> cherished, you know. Just I was just a kid at heart, and. I think we all were then, you know, uh, to just know now what what we had, in the friend that we had in him, it was unreal. Well, when he told you that you would eventually have to replace those two, how did you go about that? Because you know, you know, Frank knew you wanted to do it, and it's something for you to be resilient and keep going on. How do you put a band together? when you have these two people that you started a band with and you know that you have to get them replaced? Well, um, it was very uh, delicate 
it's uh, almost micromanaged because it fell in place. Uh, the drummer I have now, Andy Sinisi, he used to actually uh, date somebody in the family at the Zappas, and uh, Gail knew about him and uh, really thought that he was a phenomenal drummer. And the, the, the first time I met him, I knew he was. I, I, I said, can you play mental hopscotch? And he, he, he surpassed. And he is a, uh, he is his own, in his own right, and a really incredible, incredible drummer, very powerful, and uh, he's articulate. And of course, uh, Terry Bozio, you know, his, he was very precise. Um, Terry used to play on a dime, literally a dime taped on a little toilet roll, and he hit it every time, and he would never click the sticks. Terry is one of the greatest drummers in the world, as we know drummers now. I don't care who you bring to me, who played with who, and how many, and how far. Nobody can do what Terry Bozio does, and Frank knew that, and... When he told me that, I, I was shocked, but uh, when I had to come to do it, uh, Andy Sinisi was my choice. He's been with me now many years, eight, I think, and I'm also with Prescott Niles on bass, and he was from the Knack, and he's been my friend since I'm a kid, and I never thought in my life that I would be able to play with Prescott Niles. He's, uh, he's smoke. He's just uh, phenomenal. And uh, my keyboard player, um, Fred Paris, he's from Paris. And my um, guitar player, Gatsby, um, uh, they're, they're, they're geniuses. And they came to me uh, clearly, clearly. The choice was clear. And they have been with me ever since that I put the band together. Pres Prescott Niles was the first person I called. I was in Boston, and um, I people started dying on me and my family so i called prescott and said i got to come to la um my best friend just died my stepfather just died and then uh, my mother died on my birthday and then my brother died on my birthday and i said uh, okay i gotta go to work <laughs> so he said okay we'll piece it together and prescott helped me piece it together and we've been together ever since i've been actually with Prescott longer than I was with Missing Persons. Now, what's it like playing live now? Because, you know, the 80s are such a... For me, they were, I was in high school and in college. They were a fascinating time to me, and the music was so great. What's it like for you now when you go out and, and you see, you know, people bring their kids now? I mean, you touch generations. What's it like when you're playing to... The, the fans that have been since the beginning, and then new fans. I mean, how does that make you feel? Oh, you know what? I see people now that I know since I met them when they were 10, okay? I've got a fan. His name is Tom, and he's been coming to my concert since he's 10 years old. He was 10 years old out front one of the shoes concerts I played in L.A., L.A., Long Beach Arena or somewhere. And I lent him over and I pet him on the head and I said, oh, you're such a good fella. You're a good kid. He said, I love you. I love you. And I said, okay, write to me. Write to me. Be my fan. And I wrote back to him. And I believe he was nine or ten now. I don't think it was eight. I think it was ten. And uh, now, of course, that was uh, when I was 27. I'm 67. He's still my best friend. I thank him in my book now, Tom Monitor. 
and uh, he was two other friends along with him <clears throat> that are in there, and they've been my fans and friends that I friended them since they're 10 years old, and they still come to my concerts, and they still talk to me on Facebook. They're all my friends. They're on that Facebook, the Elbozio, and they, they're all there, and one of them lives here in California. I see him for lunch every so often, and uh, I see people that I know now, even for the last 10 years of missing persons, playing in California. I play in California like I like California belongs to me. Now, give me a story that's not in the book that I like, because I'm sure the story has you've told some great stories, and the book has some great I actually, stories. I actually just gave you a lot of stories that weren't in the book. <laughs> Okay, well, give me, give me, give me another one. I want to hear another one because you're a really good storyteller. One was funny that, that we went to the Kentucky Derby in Kentucky with Frank Zappa, me and Terry Bozio, and we we left the next day from the hotel. We played a concert the night before. Frank would always dress up in his nice, you know, cashmere coat and scarf, and he always wore regular pants. You know, he looked like a regular guy. But I had leopard on from head to toe, with one arm out and one arm in. My boobies like popping through, and uh, Terry Bozio was in skin tight pants all the way up to his neck. And we walked in the Kentucky Fried, the Kentucky Fried Derby, and oh my God, every hat turned upside down. But there was a girl there that had a crush on Frank, and she invited us, and she had she walked us all around and invited us, and introduced us to all these like fancy people. And they would talked about us like you couldn't imagine. I had barely anything on. I had a skin tight leopard suit on with one shoulder on and off, and I weighed eighty eight pounds with spiked heels on i don't know i don't know how they were looking at this situation it wasn't it wasn't funny but we were laughing we were we laughed we laughed hysterically i kept telling frank oh i should steal that girl's hat and he said no 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 that hat would look good on you <laughs> it was so funny and cute and i forgot all about it after i wrote the book i thought and then we used to go to this place in new york city oh my god it was called the gilded grape right now we would go to this place, and, he, and, he, and Frank would end up writing songs all about this ram it, ram it up your poop shoop. And it was all from this place called Gilded Grape. You'd walk in the front door, there'd be penises stuck in all these holes, just like dangling out, some hot, some soft, like banging on up and down. And I go, okie dokie, this ain't the disco you said we were going to, Frank. <laughs> he goes, oh, we're going to the disco, that comes next. <laughs> I'm like, oh shit. And like, you know, doing people up the wall, and it was all penises everywhere. <laughs> I couldn't freaking believe. <laughs> then we go, then we go partying, <clears throat> disco dancing. After that, you know, Frank always had his own private limo. Me and Terry jumping in, jumping out, and then we go to the brasserie, and um, we get up there one night. I remember, oh my god, that was the first night I ever had eggs Benedict on salmon. And Frank ordered this for me, and I'm like, okay, Frank, I only like shrimp and cookies. I don't know about this. <laughs> and then it got to be our, like, favorite place. Every time we were in New York, we were at the brasserie, like, 5 o'clock in the morning. We were having breakfast and all these, like, 
really, really eccentric people in New York City. That was the craziest times that I ever got to be with Frank was in New York. They loved him so crazy in New York. They'd throw out red carpets. Same thing in London. We'd go to this uh, club in London called Tramps. They'd roll out, literally roll out a red carpet that Frank would walk in to get in the club. I mean, treated him like a king. King. Stayed at the best hotels around the world, everywhere around the world <clears throat> with Frank. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, it's pretty hard to believe, really. I mean, you know, it was really great that I, I got to talk to you today about all these things. It brings a lot of great memories back to me and thinking to myself, you know, where is Terry and Warren when I need them? Because uh, it's going to be 50 years that that record came out. You know, they, they should really step up to the plate and call me. They should. And you know what? I, yeah. I, I'm so happy you talked to me. I have one question for one last question. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. What do you think made the 80s such a great time for music? You know, I, I feel that I feel that people weren't stereotyped. I, I feel that people weren't planned by the producer or the uh, the person over here that's dressing this one or you know, uh, oh, let's get this photographer. It was, it was from the street. It was nitty gritty, man. We, we, we were kids. We were all kids. You know, all of us that have all grown up, the flock of seagulls, Josie Cotton, wow, wow, wow. Look at that girl. She was 15 dancing around at UCLA. All these young up and coming artists and this alive today. I play, I'm, I've, I play, I played with those ladies of the eighties. I played with with, with a lot of, you know, these 80s bands, and they're still going strong, and they started when they were young from the nitty-gritty with their friends or a brother or somebody like that, and, and you know, just like Terry Warren and I, you know, Frank looked at us and said, hey, you guys look funky. <laughs> Why don't you just do what you do like you do, walk around like that? People will think you're a rock band. And they did anyway. Everywhere we went, we were so radical <laughs> and, and weird. And... uh I just think it just came from, from the street, you know, it came from the gut. It really, it was, that's the only way anything's lasting. I mean, look at all these people like, you know, old famous rock stars. They, they last like Frankie Valley for one, you know, my drummer plays with him. Dude, the guy's 85. Are you kidding me? Sings the same? Like, really? Uh, it's, it's amazing because when you start from the street, man, and it's really true what you're doing, it's not hard to keep it up, you know, it's, it's, you're not faking it. When you start faking it and making this up in the studio and you got this backing track is blown up over here and then you put the fake drum tracking over there, well, then you got a bunch of electronics running your road for you. And I just think that's how it fell apart, you know, that's it. Electronically, everything fell in the gutter. Well, I'm glad that we got to talk, and I love the music. And I'm actually, I think I'm going to listen to your album again this weekend. I always do that. Whenever I have to talk to a guest, I always I open, a, I open a bottle of wine, and I'll sit down, and I'll listen to the album. I'm going to listen to your music again this weekend because I love it. And uh, now give the people where they can get the book. Give that information again. Well, you know what? Thank you very much, and I appreciate all your time and energy, and and I appreciate that you're going to listen to the music. You should listen to my new record called Dreaming, that one on Cleopatra. 
it's uh, I, I think you I think you'll be impressed. I, I, I really do. Uh, I wrote this song called Dreaming and I, I sing it straight from the cuff and I'm very proud of it. But um, you can get the book at uh, two different places very quickly. As I say, I'll self-autograph it or personally autograph it to you. I'm sending out 8 by 10s with it, and I'm so proud of it. I'm so, so happy that I got to get this story told, and I, I hope it will inspire you to pull yourself together and make, make it all happen. That, that's all, you know, that's all. I just want you to see that I was just this little girl, and I, I just put this, like, magnificent uh, project together for myself and and I, I got to the goal you know I mean I'm not done yet of course it's not that's it that kind of sounds you know strange saying you got to the goal but but I did reach a lot of plateaus that I was so grateful for myself and you can get the book on Facebook slash dalebozio.com and also on dalebozio.today so people go get the book, go buy the albums, listen to Missing Persons. If you if you don't know who they are, you're crazy because you know their songs. Their music's great because we all in New Jersey we said nobody walks in L.A. Then they moved to L.A. <laughs> and I lived in Burbank and I used to walk. I go wait a second, I guess I'm walking in Burbank. But people go check out Dale, go look him up, uh, go to my website uh, CooperTalk.net. You can find 891 episodes there. Email me Cooper at CooperTalk.net. Follow me on Twitter. It's at CooperTalk. Instagrams at CooperTalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.